You're listening to the Centre Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message recorded live from our Burgess Hill campus. I just want to say thank you girls for inviting me to come and share, even though I'm like, oh, I don't like doing this kind of thing, but I do like doing this kind of thing, if you know those things. Um, so, I've already worked out the noisy bunch. It's you guys. Sunrise. Follow closely by the seats up there. So I will expect responses. So you guys have got to work really hard to compete with them now, okay? So I do bring greetings from Ian and from my church, uh, Riviera Life Church in Torquay. The English Riviera, that's where I come from. Anyone ever been? Have you? Did you like it? It's beautiful, isn't it? beautiful place to live. I didn't originate from there. I originated from a little mill town in the northwest of England called Blackburn. And and now I'm living in the English Riviera. And I'm like, God, why? There's nothing special about me, but thank you anyway. Caroline, can you just just pass me my drink there? I'm going to dry up. Thanks. So I grew up there parents who were Christians, so all I've known all my life is growing up in church. Um, And then I went to university uh, in Manchester at the age of 18. I did a degree in nursing uh, for four years, and then at the same time trained as a health visitor. And then um, I just kind of like met Ian, and we fell in love. It's a really romantic story, but it's really long, so I'm not going to talk to you about that, but if you want to know, I'm quite happy to share it. and then moved down to be with him in Devon, the English Riviera, and stayed there ever since. And we had babies, because that's what you do when you get married. Most of us do, if we can. Um, so I got caught up in that, um, did as much as I could in church. And uh, Ian got really busy in church and uh, along the regional scene, on the national scene with Assemblies of God. And um, and then when I stopped having babies, when I worked out what was going on, I stopped. Um, <laughs> took a little bit of time, I know. Um, I kind of merged from that season. Do you know like, what I'm talking about when you kind of like merge? And you kind of go, oh, okay, what's going on in the world? What's happened while I've been in nappies and milk? And um, so then I got involved um, in church life. So we planted the church that we're in, Riviera Life Church, 25 years ago. Um, when I say that, it sounds like a long time. Um, and when you say things like that, when you're my age, you kind of go, that is a long time. Surely, I'm not really that old. Surely it's not that long. But it is that long. Time goes past really quickly, doesn't it? Your life goes past. And Solomon, in all his wisdom, says, you know, it's here and it's gone. And so we have to make the most of every day. And I just have the revelation a number of years ago of God and his goodness and his faithfulness. And for me, what life is about, and it is about, he's given us a life that is overflowing, a life of abundance. Living life to the full is his plan and purpose for every single one of us. And that's what I want to embrace it's what I kind of go, well, you need to teach me, God, what it's all about and help me to deal with the stuff in my life that gets in the way and stops me from living life to the full. 
So, hence what I've entitled the conference, Living Life Full and Free. And the sessions um, that I've kind of titled, session one and session two, they're called From Brokenness to Abundance. Because actually, we're all a bit broken, aren't we? On the inside. And we're all on a journey of being mended. But God's plan for us is to live in that abundance. And when you prayed, you prayed about what God has for us um, is over and abundant and beyond what we have ever imagined or think. So, this very first session, what I want to really look at is some of the stuff that really gets to us, that gets in the way of us living these amazing full and free lives. Some of us, some of the stuff that makes us a bit broken. I would warn you that I'm a very practical person. My husband is very inspirational. I don't know if you've heard him preach, but he's very inspirational. He's a great ideas person. And when we're working together, we've learned how to work together. He comes up with a great idea and I'll go, okay, that sounds great. How are we going to do that? And he'll look at me and go, oh, I don't know. And I've learned that that's where I come in. Okay, then. So we'll do this, this, and this, and then it will happen. Okay. And they go, yeah, all right. And then we'll move on to the next idea. So I'm very pragmatic, and that's what we're going to do today. Are you okay with all that? Okay. Fab. So we're going to talk in this first session. At living beyond, broke, living beyond guilt and shame. So, first off, we live, don't we, in this incredibly, increasingly sophisticated world. I mean, knowledge is just increasing on a daily basis. Science, beyond me. Medicine, we think, you know, a number of years ago, if people got cancer, it literally was, that was it. But nowadays, people are living with cancer. IT, oh my goodness, don't even go there. That is just totally beyond my thinking. But there are breakthroughs continuously um, in every area of our lives. Knowledge is just beyond our comprehension. But when we consider the human race, the pinnacle of God's creation we just see brokenness. Brokenness in how people view themselves and what they do to themselves. Brokenness in how people view other people and how they relate to other people. We are failing miserably. And I would suggest like no other time in history when we observe that lack of compassion and human kindness that we have for ourselves and for others in this really materialistic, go-get-it-driven, civilized, so-called society. And we have an increasing number of narcissistic, have you heard that word? It's kind of the in word, isn't it? Do you know what it means? Yeah, well, it means those self-absorbed, egotistical, selfish individuals. And we probably all have a picture in our mind now who they are. 
but those who were intent on having their own needs and wants met, irrespective of anyone else. Life is only ever about them. No thought, consideration to anyone else. And we just see in our world, don't we, relationships are, are broken. All are impacted by those broken relationships. Scarred, all of us, by humanity's treatment of humanity. And the unit that God designed, the building block for human production and reproduction, the family, is even more broken. In fact, it's unrecognizable to when I was growing up. I know that was a long time ago. But when I was growing up, we had the nuclear family. When I was in school, it was the norm to have mum and a dad living in a house together. These days, it is very rare. That nuclear, even extended family with grandparents living, it is rarely seen. What we have in its place is what we call the blended family. Have you heard that term? Blended family. I don't know who came up with that. But the blended family just brings confusion. It's incredibly complex in its makeup. So that we have generations of children often not knowing who their parents are. Not knowing at times what gender their parents are. My little grandson, he is three, Boaz. He's beautiful. He's the best thing since sliced bread. And if you want to come see me, like every nanny does, I'll show you a picture. You won't ask me. He's just gone three. And he came out of nursery last week and he said to my daughter, Mummy, my friend has got two mummies. And my daughter was a little bit taken aback because at three she hadn't quite expected or prepared herself to deal with that with her three-year-old. So she just went, okay, what did you say? Oh, I just told him I'd got a daddy and a mummy. Okay. Fortunately, he left it there and didn't say, why has my friend got two mummies? So I think she needs to prepare herself to answer that question at some point because it will come. But that is what our children are growing up in and with. And our children are growing up living between different households, shared between carers, often not being wanted in themselves, but used as a weapon between warring parents. So that they grow up as an interdysfunctional adults with poor mental health and low self-esteem and confidence, unable to function themselves, a product of our sophisticated, broken society. When we look at our world from a higher perspective, from God's perspective, from the creator of the world's perspective, in light of the Bible, we read in John 10.10, a thief has only one thing in mind. He wants to steal, slaughter, and destroy. But Jesus said, I have come to give you everything in abundance more than you expect, life in its fullness until you overflow. And the thief, Satan, our enemy in this world, it would look like he's achieving his aim. When we look at the destruction of relationships, 
the robbing of life, wiping out people wherever he can. But Jesus states his purpose and presence for being here. It is life. It's for all of us to live beyond brokenness, beyond being wrecked and shattered and fragmented lives, to living in abundance, living in plenty, living in prosperity, in richness in the full meaning of that word, fullness of life to overflowing. And I look at when Jesus started his ministry in the Bible, he went to the synagogue one day in his hometown. And in Luke 4, we read these words where he was handed uh, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And it was Isaiah 61. And Jesus opened that scroll on that day and he read these words. God's spirit is on me. He's chosen me to preach the message of good news to the poor. Sent me to announce pardon to prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind. To set the burdened and the battered free. And to announce that this is God's year to act. And then he rolled the scroll up and handed it back and sat down and said, This scripture has been fulfilled this very day. I don't know about you, but if you could ever choose a moment in history to live in, I would love to have been there. Can you imagine the atmosphere in that moment when Jesus took that scroll and said those words, which were prophesied hundreds of years before, and Jesus got up and talked about himself and said, this is it. I'm here. Whoa. So he talked about his purposeful being right there. But you know what? I know he rolled the scroll up and handed it back, but that scripture was open that day and it's never gone back. Because he passed it on to us. Because his spirit has been given to us. So we can say the very same words. God's spirit is on me. Because he's chosen me and you to preach that very same message to a world that is broken. And our purpose is to set the burdened and the battered free. But our experience must be first for us to live in freedom. To move from brokenness to abundance, to deal with the stuff in our lives that gets in the way of that. And like I said, I just want to look at some of the fundamental, more common to women things that gets in the way. And the first one is guilt. And I don't know about you ladies, but we are experts at guilt. Hands up if you're an expert at guilt so good. I don't think men are at all. Do you know any men who feel guilt? No. I think we got that in bigger proportion. So, guilt, what is it? It describes a sense of regret or responsibility 
relating to something we've done wrong, things we believe were our fault, even things we have no responsibility for. And an example of that is survivor's guilt can affect people. People who've survived tragedies when others haven't. Maybe people who have had a baby when a friend has maybe had a miscarriage. You feel guilty that your baby survived. How strange are we? And guilt is defined as having a common feeling of emotional distress that signals us when our actions or sometimes our inactions might or actually have caused harm to another person. Now, true guilt and guilty feelings are not the same things. Now, if you break the law, you're guilty. There's no doubt about that. And I'm not going to show, have a show of hands about who has broken the law and served a prison sentence in here, because I'm looking at you, none of you. Oh, I don't know about the balcony, but none of you down here. Definitely not. Anyone had a speeding fine? Okay, show of hands. You're not telling the truth, a lot of you. I'll deal with lies later. But if you've had a speeding fine, you have broken the law. You're guilty. But most people, including Christians, experience guilt feelings in our everyday lives. Okay, did anyone feel guilty about coming here today? When you left the house, did you just have a light smidge guilt? Yeah? Not admitting it. Bet you did. So, guilt feelings. In small doses, they're actually really beneficial, really valuable emotion. And we can underestimate the role it plays in our daily lives. And I just want to share some facts with you about guilt feelings. These are amazing. You'll like these, particularly the last one. Now, they typically occur in little micro bursts of brief signals. And first off, guilt actually protects our relationships. So if we do something wrong that affects or hurts others, we feel guilty. And therefore, it leads us to repair that relationship. So we go and apologize sincerely, and we make amends, and we don't do it again. Learn from that mistake we made, because the anticipation of guilt ought to stop us doing it again. Second fact is, each guilt signal might be brief, but taken together, they add up. And there was a study that when you add up all the moments you spend feeling mildly or even moderately guilty, is five hours a week of guilty feelings. I did that. Wow, that's a lot. That's what we do, ladies. Guilt can be useful in small doses, but unresolved guilt is like having a snooze alarm in your head that won't shut off. Now, I personally, I don't get snooze alarms. I just don't. 
I put an alarm on every day to get myself up. But I always wake up before my alarm because I don't like being woken up by alarm because it makes me jump. Does anyone else do that? So, so for someone to then tell me that the alarm wakes them up, jumps them away, and then they press the snooze button to have that same experience again and again and again. I'm like, oh, I just don't get that at all. But if you're a snooze button person, you know, it takes all sorts. Um, so it's like a snooze button is unresolved. It just won't shut off. And it makes it hard for you to concentrate. So your attention is constantly hogged by bursts of guilty feelings. And it can persist for quite lengthy periods of time. And it can become really detrimental and difficult to think straight. Because when you've got guilty feelings shouting loudly in your head, because that's where they are, it is competing with your attention for whatever else you're doing. The demands of your work, um, kids, school, wherever you are at, and eventually guilt wins because it's shouting so loud. And studies have found that concentration, productivity, creativity, and efficiency are all significantly lower when you're feeling actively guilty. Not only does it make you hard for you to function, but it makes us reluctant to enjoy ourselves. Have you noticed that? You're feeling guilty. And it says even mild guilt can make us hesitant to embrace the joys of life, like not going to a party, moving around on holiday. And for some people, it can do even worse damage. It can make you self-punish. That's bad. Not always ourselves we punish when we feel guilty. It can also make us avoid the person we've wronged, that remind us of the wrong that we've done. So it's really detrimental to our lives. Guilt-prone people, because some are actually prone more than others, assume they've harmed others when they haven't. These are the ones that just feel guilty constantly. When your trigger for feeling guilty feelings is set too low. So everything you do, feel guilty about. Your guilt alarm goes off when it shouldn't do. And you end up feeling guilty about hurting others when you haven't done anything at all. You imagine people's disapproval and it's not there. And you just live in constant and unnecessary stress. So guilt is a heavy burden to carry. Listen to this one. You will like this. Guilty feelings make you feel literally heavier and more belaboured. And studies found that feeling guilty makes people assess their weight as being significantly heavier than it actually is, and physical activities as requiring more effort than non-guilty people. So if you have this guilt thing going on all the time, you think you're fatter than you are. So that is cause to deal with guilt if nothing else is. I just want to slip this one in. There are some people who guilt trip for the purpose of controlling and manipulating. The people who kind of say, oh, you never call me. 
never include me. Don't take me out. Are you all thinking of someone? There's no one here like that, sir. So. And the response for the other person is then, oh, I bet call her. She will pay me. I bet call her. I'll never hear the last of it. She'll be ringing me up. She'll be texting me. So we begin to talk like that about the other person. I ought to. I should do. I better do it. Or I'll feel bad or they'll make me feel bad. And, and you have this relationship which is built on control and manipulation. Guilt trips are bad for relationships. So if you're a guilt tripper, don't do it. Deal with it. If you've got people in your life who guilt trip you, there's a conversation to be had with them. Because it's not good for them, it's not good for you. Because you end up feeling resentful about them. don't really want to be their proper friend. So guilty feelings in small specific bursts can have, be a really positive emotion, but when they're allowed to run free, they cause havoc. Guilt itself, if you've not broken the law of the land, you stand up in court before a judge, he'll go, innocent. But we all know that one day we will all stand before our heavenly judge, a righteous and a holy God. When we go right back to the beginning of time, we see Adam, do we not? Our lovely forefather. He disobeyed God, didn't he? Set up an inheritance for the rest of mankind for us. One man's disobedience opened the door for all humanity to become sinners. Romans 5.19 All faced a death sentence with a verdict of guilty. Thanks, Adam. That is the bottom line. So when we stand before God, we have to deal with that. And there are three ways that guilt comes to us. That from Adam, our inheritance, our own outright rebellion towards God, and just that missing the mark. You know when we try to do everything right and we just mess up? And we try different strategies to get rid of our guilt, don't we? We try to be good, do good works, to prove our innocence to God by the good things that we do. We try to say to God, yeah, but look at my religious background. Look, I've been to church all my life. I go on Sunday. I read the Bible. I pray. It doesn't cut. And then we can do the comparison thing. You go, at least I don't do what she does. I mean, she's a real sinner. But we have a remedy for guilt, and it's God's remedy. Romans 5.19 All people were made sinners as a result of one man's disobedience, but in the same way they will be put right with God as the result of the obedience of the one man. The price has been paid for sin. We had a debt that was owed a convict serves time for a wrongdoing, and at the end of that sentence, he's free, debt paid. And Jesus on the cross did all that for us. In John 19, verse 30, he cried the words, It is finished. Meaning, literally, paid in full. And that means for all of humankind to live guilt-free for always. 
the debt cancelled, for us to have that not guilty verdict over our lives. And that isn't just when we first come to him. That is, we have God's grace every single day of our lives for all the wrong that we will ever do every single day. We can ask ourselves a question, but what if I still feel guilty after doing all that? After we've been to Jesus and said, forgive me, wash me clean, make me whole. And he does that. That's the fact. But what if we still feel guilty? The feelings are lying to you. And we need to focus on the truth. You are forgiven. Actually, we're beyond forgiven. Let me just tell you what happens. 1 John 1 says this, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. So you're forgiven. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And I love the Passion Version which says, Farther than a sunrise to a sunset, that's how far you've removed our guilt from us. So he's not just forgiven us, he's removed our guilt from us. And then Hebrews 10, 17, he says, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. I'll wipe the slate clean. So he forgives, removes our guilt, forgets we ever did it. And therefore, we go to Romans 8.1. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The case is closed. The judge says, case is closed. No charges. There remains no accusing voice of condemnation against those who are joined in life union with Jesus, the anointed one. And that's the truth. Our guilt is sorted. The price has been paid. Our debt has been cancelled. And we can live in freedom. Yeah? Did you get it? It's okay? Are your bums going numb yet? Are you okay? Anyone want to stand up and just let some circulation get to that bit? You're okay. Right, I'm going to carry on then. I'm going to talk about shame now. Okay. So shame is the painful emotional experience that comes from believing that there is something very wrong, not so much with what we have done, but with who we are. And we often confuse shame with guilt, but there is a specific difference. And the author, Breen Brown, says, the difference between shame and guilt is the difference between I am bad and I did something bad. So guilt says, I did something wrong, I made a mistake, And shame says, there's something wrong with me. I am the mistake. 
So the feeling of guilt is about doing something wrong, whereas shame is about being wrong at the core of our being. And the feeling of shame comes from the belief that I am basically flawed. I'm inadequate. I'm bad. I'm wrong. I'm not good enough. Is shame a good thing? Well, scraping the bottom of the barrel, it means you're a decent human being with a conscience because a psychopath won't feel shame. So, has anyone not felt any shame in here today? Because I'd be really worried because we've got some psychopaths in the house. The fact that you feel bad about yourself is actually cause to feel good about yourself, if you know what I mean. But it also highlights what your values are because you only feel shame when you violate your values. And how does shame affect people? It makes people feel worthless embarrassed, humiliated, and unclean. Shame is often felt when someone experiences or commits or associates with a shameful act. And it's so powerful that it can impact the whole trajectory of a person's life. So anytime you think you've done something wrong or don't know something and you just feel uncomfortable, you may be feeling a version of shame. Some people experience what's called toxic shame. And that's the neurotic, irrational feeling of worthlessness, humiliation, self-loathing that's been inflicted onto an individual through repeated and traumatic experiences that have often, but not always, um, rooted in childhood. And not surprisingly, shame generally has its roots in our family of origin. And if one or more of our parents themselves were bound up in shame, they passed that very painful legacy to us because they couldn't do anything less through their feelings about themselves and their treatment of us. And children are particularly vulnerable to shame because they develop their identity based on their parents' reactions to them. And if anyone grew up in a neglectful, abusive, controlling, or otherwise dysfunctional family, then shame is an inevitable consequence of these really painful experiences. When we look, like I've already said, about how our families are functioning, not functioning these days, shame is an incredible ongoing issue to our children in our world today. How could you not feel shame if you were mistreated or ignored? The conclusion you come to is, surely there's got to be something wrong with me if your parents can't be there for you or show you love. And when we're made to feel deficient or inadequate and unlovable, as children, or even in adult relationships that are abusive, we actually begin to see ourselves this way. And sadly, how we have been treated by others when we were children becomes the way we treat ourselves. And we then develop unhealthy 
coping mechanisms to just like muffle those feelings of shame. And all of those coping strategies have a negative effect on our relationships with other people. We can become angry, withdrawn, we blame, we have contempt, we control, we become perfectionists, people pleasers. All strategies which temporarily relieve that pain of feeling inadequate and unlovable. But they don't address the root cause of our shame. Because we go back to that man again in the garden. Adam, he's got a lot to answer for. Because that's where shame originated. And Adam and Eve did something spectacularly wrong in the garden. Okay, they took a bit of fruit and ate it. Now that's not something spectacularly wrong, you would say. But something spectacular happened in that process. They disobeyed God's explicit instructions, don't touch that fruit. And you would expect them to feel guilty. But actually, it's not obvious that they did. Let's have a look at before the event, Genesis 2:25. It says, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Life was good. After the fall, after the event, after disobedience, Genesis 3-7 says, at that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. They covered themselves. Immediately, they felt something at the very core of their being much deeper than guilt, more fundamental. They felt shame. And the English word for shame originally meant covering up. Just what Adam and Eve did. The guilt came later when they hid from God when he came looking for them. But the significance of that one single act, where the devil tempted and lied to man and said, if you touch that fruit, God's not going to kill you, like he said, because he's a liar. A man gave in to that temptation and disobeyed God and committed sin. Not only forever did it spoil his relationship with God, but for all humankind, but he also sabotaged and sullied and tarnished the very nature of humanity and left a legacy to humankind of shame and guilt. For us to live crippled, by shame, living small, shrunken lives, thinking ourselves worthless and meaningless, aborting our purpose because of who we think we are. Because how could a holy God consider using the likes of us, unclean and dirty? 
weighed down by guilt, constantly reminded of what we've done and how we mess up and make mistakes. That is what happened in the garden. When we read in Genesis 1.27, God created human beings. He created us God-like in his own image, reflecting his nature. And he pronounced over his creation of humankind, it's so very good. And in one fell swoop, one single act, it was ruin. Devastation ensued. God's plans for creation were destroyed. And humanity was banished from God's presence to live out their lives in guilt and shame. But God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes and trusts in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge and condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. It's God's rescue plan. I'm so grateful for that. Aren't you? You see, God's creation plan was thwarted by the wiles of the devil, but his salvation, his master rescue plan, was no match for the enemy. The enemy who we know seeks to steal, slaughter, and destroy. He became a defeated foe at the cross. God's remedy to shame was through his salvation plan, and it is the only true and lasting one. Shame says that we are what is wrong, and it puts us in that less mess belief. We believe that we are helpless and worthless and meaningless. And it strikes our belief about who we are, our identity. But God's remedy is to give us a new identity. Ephesians 2, 3 says, We were at one time by nature the children of wrath, of anger and rebellion. But 2 Corinthians 5 for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we became the righteousness of God. So that, in Peter it says, we share God's divine nature. Restoration happens. Shame gone away forever. It's in the past. And Paul goes on to tell us in 2 Corinthians 5 that if any man or woman be in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Totally new, clean, identity in Jesus Christ 
And where shame would have made us retreat from a holy God, there is now no running away and hiding, no matter what is in your past. How amazing is that? Shame is dealt with. We have a new identity. And also, we have a new name. Isaiah 62 says, God says to us, you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. And I know that many of you have had names spoken over you that have not been good. Maybe from your parents, certainly from friends or enemies, because who needs friends when they speak names like that over you? But the mouth of the Lord gives you a new name. These are some of the names that are recorded in the book of truth. Beloved, beautiful, chosen one, precious, clean, welcomed, heir, Delight, gifted, treasured, pure. Some of you need to hear that one. You are called pure. And that's how God sees you. It's not only your name, it's who you are. A new name and a new identity absolutely instantaneously when we come to Jesus. But you know what? Journeying from shame and rebuilding self-esteem and self-love, it does take time. And patience and renewing of our mind, changing the way we think, not with the falsehoods fed by the enemy, but with the truth that is written in the word of God. And here's a promise that I'm going to finish on. Isaiah 61, 7 says this, Instead of your shame, you shall have a double portion of honor. That's the promise over your life. Instead of your shame. And I know, ladies, that there are people in here today who suffer with shame and guilt and they're really difficult to deal with. They're things that have been ingrained and embedded into our lives right at the core of our being for whatever reasons, whatever experiences we've had. And when we carry guilt, it causes us to walk down under its weight because it's a burden. And when we carry shame, it causes us to walk with our head hung low because we have not the confidence to look people in the eye. But we've learned that guilt and shame can be lifted. And when it is, it affects our stance and it affects our walk. And we can stand upright and shoulders back, eye contact with the world. And we can walk tall, even Five foot of you can walk tall with a lightness of step, a walk of 
freedom. And we're going to pray today for those who would like to walk tall and walk in freedom. We're going to pray for guilt and shame for whatever reason to be lifted. For that living in the lie of the enemy who wants to steal, slaughter and destroy your life. The price has been paid. That not guilty son is over you. And no more shame. Because you have a new identity in Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast at Centre Church. One church passionately loving God and people in Burgess Hill and Brighton. To get the latest news or for any other information, check out our website at www.centrechurch.uk.